0: Amen. So we considered last week the fifth commandment, that is the commandment to honor one's parents in its most specific sense. Um, And that is as referring exclusively to one's parents. That's what we talked about a lot last week. Now this week, we will consider the commandment in its most expansive sense as referring to authority in general. So we're moving from a very specific sense, to a wider, more expansive sense. And now the fifth commandment, the commandment to honor father and mother, is really something of a transition. It connects the first four commandments, which are primarily about one's relationship to God, and it connects to the second uh, table, the second commandment, or the, the commandments four through six, which are primarily about one's relationship to their fellow man. So the fifth commandment has a mediatorial role between the first table of the commandments and the second table of the commandments, holding the two together. And it's worth considering both sides. Now on the one side, father and mother, in some sense, mediate one's relationship to God. Their parenthood is an analogy to God's parenthood. Their authority is an analogy to His authority. And so really, more than any other human relationship, the relationship between parents and their children bears a connection, a likeness to one's relationship to God. Parents, we might say, are stand-ins, God, and this is expressed in the words of Leviticus, chapter nineteen, verse three. The Lord says, "This every one of you shall reverence his father or his mother, and his father, I am the Lord your God." Translators, at least English translators, have chosen to translate the word reverence, but it's more properly fear. As one fears God, they are to fear their parents. That is, to treat them with great honor and deference. And we might translate this into a New Testament register. It's essentially the same insight expressed by the Apostle John. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he says, if someone, lo- if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if a man cannot honor his parents whom he can see, then it necessarily follows that he will not be able to honor God whom he has not seen. As the love of God is empty, as it's a farce without the love of neighbor, so also the honor of God is empty without the honor of one's father and mother. So, in other words, the parental relationship mediates the divine relationship. It's, it's an analogy of that, and they bear a close likeness to one another. So, the, the, in that sense, the fifth commandment looks back to the first table of the commandments. But, as we've said, this runs the opposite direction as well. The fifth commandment and our obedience to it sets the tone for commandments six through ten. Because the parental relationship is the most basic human relationship, it has a determining influence on every other relationship. And that bears out, generally speaking, how one treats their parents conditions, determines how one will behave in society for better or worse. It's the most basic relationship, and therefore what happens there between father and mother and their children is going to set the tone for what happens everywhere else. And so that basic insight, the parental relationship, as the most basic human relationship, forms the rationale for expanding the fifth commandment to a societal level, to to include, rather, all other authorities. Now, we find no reference in the commandment to elders or rulers or teachers, yet, understood this way, such an interpretation makes good sense. And so, if we're to proceed with any clarity, if this is to make any sense, what needs to be understood is this, parental authority comes prior to any other authority, Authority. And the institution of the family comes prior to any other institution. It's pre legal, it's pre political, indeed, it is pre everything. The parent to child, the child to parent relationship forms the basis of the entire society, it's the basic building block of society. Political commentator and theorist Yuval Levin, he writes for all these journals. He says, our social order flows out of the basic conditions of how we come into the world, how we move through it and depart it, and so it unavoidably flows outward from the family. He says this, family is the most primordial and therefore the most foundational of the institutions that form society. So it starts right there with the family. So the fifth commandment, the parent-child relationship, is at the heart and foundation of society. And so it seems, right, very natural to say that all other authority, all other institutions stem from the family. That's where they come out of. That's where they receive their origin. And so this is why Or at least it should be why the church takes a stand against same-sex marriage. Marriage and the family that arises from marriage is the first and most basic institution. And therefore, catch the order here, it comes before the state. The authority of the family is prior to the authority of the state. So it's not the state's role to create and define The institutions of marriage and family. It doesn't have the authority to do that. Rather, the state's role is to recognize marriage and the family as pre-existing realities, things that come before the state. And so the state, what it's supposed to do is take steps to aid the family and marriage in the work that they're already doing. So in other words... The state doesn't have authority to impinge on the family except in cases of negligence and abuse because, again, parental authority is prior to the state's authority. The state, it can be structured differently in different contexts, and it is. Its form and its composition are dependent on more basic realities. The way a particular people understands the world, the way they understand ethics, and etc. And so, until kingdom come, when Christ's rule is realized on the earth, the state, it's going to take many shapes and sizes, all of which tend toward injustice. The family, however, is not determined by pre-existing realities, but by nature itself. To be sure, the family is or the family will be given different inflections in different contexts more patriarchal here more matriarchal matriarchal there yet nature itself determines that the family will always be constituted by male and female by father and mother the family therefore as we've been saying is more foundational than the state it comes before it and really the only institution that can relativize parental authority is the church. Because it's grounded not in creation, but in new creation. And so in our current conception of things, we have it backward. The state is not the most basic institution. And so cannot authorize and even determine the nature of other institutions. In this case, marriage and the family. So, Back to my original point. Parental authority, being the most basic form of authority, gives rise to all other forms of authority. It's the building block of society. Now, that doesn't mean that, say, political authority is the same kind of authority as parental authority. It's clearly not. Politicians are not societal parents put in charge to operate the nanny state. Instead, parents have their own particular authority, right, with its own rules and regulations from God. The state has its own particular authority with its own rules and regulations from God, and they each serve their particular role. So our intention here is not to conflate the two authorities, but simply to recognize that the state's authority, although it's different, arises from the authority of the family. The authority from father and mother. Thus, and here's where, after all that, we want to get to our point. Thus, there's a long tradition of interpreting the fifth commandment as not only referring to parents, but all authority. Parents are the most basic authority, and therefore implicit in the command are all other forms of authority that arise from parental authority. So you have a venerable document like the Westminster Catechism that interprets the commandment as as follows. By father and mother, in the fifth commandment, are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as, by God's ordinance, are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. So read narrowly, the commandment refers to parents, but taken more broadly, it rightly refers to all other forms of authority. And the catechism bunches those other forms of authority under one heading, superiors. Therefore, any superior, however we might define that term, be it the aged or the statesman or a teacher or whomever, are all deserving of honor. We are to honor those that God has placed in authority over us. And so the whole matter might be summed up in the words of the Apostle Peter. First Peter chapter 2 verses 13 and 17 he says as follows, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as freemen, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondslaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So, in order to honor the Lord, we are to honor all men, particularly those in authority submitting ourselves to every human institution, whatever it may be. And that does not mean that we are never to disobey human authorities. There are times when that is necessary. That is another matter that we want to get to. But the point is, we must render due honor to all authority and all men. So, we'll come back to this at the end of the message, but right now, I want to move on to the second part of the commandments, the rationale of the commandment. The fifth commandment bids us to honor our parents, and not merely our parents, but all in authority for an express purpose. The fifth commandment, as the apostle points out, is the first commandment with a promise attached to it. I'll read it. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12: Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So in obedience to the commands, a particular blessing is promised to the nation, that they will be established and prolonged in the land which has been given them. And it's not simply a transaction. The people do this, and the Lord will do this, as if The obedience and the promise are unrelated, kind of like a parent promising a toy for good behavior. Rather, obedience to the command is the very thing that facilitates the blessing. So, a long stay in the promised land for the Israelites can only be realized by honoring father and mother and all other authorities that arise from them. Thus, What the fifth commandment envisions becomes that much clearer. We get a better idea of what it's actually talking about. Oliver O'Donovan, who in my opinion is the church's greatest living political theologian, talks about the the fifth commandment this way. He says, The household is envisioned as the primary unit of cultural transmission. The father and the mother as representing every existing social practice which is important to carry on. Only so can community sustain itself within its environment, the land which the Lord your God gives you. No social survival in any land can be imagined without a stable cultural environment across generations. So honoring one's parents in particular, and all of their authority in general, is about carrying on the nation's spiritual, and social heritage. Creating a stable cultural environment across generations, as O'Donovan says. So it it goes something like this. The current generation is careful to receive and maintain what it received from the previous generation. And it takes what it received, and then it passes it along, that inheritance along to the next generation. Who will in turn pass it along to the next generation? And so on and so on. There's a continuity that is there in the heart of the commandment that makes it possible to live in the land and to stay in the land. So thus, over vast swaths of history, through peace and war, through prosperity and famine, through blessing and cursing, the nation retains a coherent identity. Think of the Hebrew people now. If there is there any people who should no longer be a people and should have assimilated into their environment? It would have been the Hebrew people. Displaced so many times, scattered to the corners of the earth, and yet they are the same everywhere you go because there's a heritage that's passed down that's important, and it helps them maintain and retain a coherent identity. So what was at the beginning is what it is now and what it will be in the future. And that stability over time through change is what enables a nation to remain in the land. And so every generation receives an inheritance and it's careful to honor and cultivate that inheritance. It doesn't have to start from scratch and reinvent itself every 40 or so years having to begin the race all over again at the starting line. Rather, in the form of tradition and heritage, the baton is passed from one generation to the next, each uh, generation taking the people forward to a place that it's never been before. And really, until yesterday, such intergenerational baton passing was recognized as essential for any family or community or nation to endure it must have something be it values or stories or ideas to transmit otherwise it's entirely rootless there's nothing to there's nothing to hand down and what happens it soon dies cut off from the past from any form of heritage it has only this present moment and therefore no identity and therefore no unity, and therefore it's something soon to perish. Now, I've learned this in the past couple years, and I've already decided that when my father passes, I will immortalize him in our family by turning him into a folk hero, telling tales about his exploits in this barren and lawless land. Right? He will become to our family throughout the ages the embodiment of what it means to be a montaña. Through those stories, we'll learn to be generous and hospitable and hardworking, slightly mischievous, and above all, entirely indifferent to what other people think. There's something to pass down, and then suddenly there's an identity about who we are as a family. <laughs> so, whether it be in families or churches or nations, we've entirely lost the value of this, of receiving something, of cherishing it, and then turning it over to the next generation. And it's not just that we lack a heritage and traditions to unite us, right? That, that our worst problem is an overemphasis on individuality and independence. The problem, really, is much more serious than that. And so, having surveyed the commandments... This time from a wider perspective, it leads us to consider why obedience to it, honoring authorities, is particularly challenging in our day. And to make this clear, I want to draw upon the work of sociologist and historian Philip Brief. And I think his analysis will prove helpful as we attempt to consider what the commandment means for us today. And really his claim about our society is rather simple. It defines itself against the past. In other words, we are not interested in carrying on the legacy that has been left to us, but in discarding it altogether. It's the exact opposite of the situation envisioned in the fifth commandment. Our institutions, embodied in the university and the media and popular culture, used to be conduits for the transmission and preservation of culture, That was their purpose, really. Now, the situation is quite different. Those very same institutions are devoted to the opposite, to subversion, to destabilization, and to destruction of the culture's traditions. Thus, Reef designates our culture an anti-culture. That's what he calls it. And it exists, he says, only as a negation of the past. So, it's helpful to ask, what is culture? Now, a minimal definition to that might be that it is the traditions and institutions and patterns of behavior that transmit values from one generation to the next. That's what culture is. Now, a culture that is entirely set against its received culture, as ours is, can only be, according to Reef, an anti culture. It wants not to carry the baton forward, building upon what it received, but to demolish that inheritance and to build something entirely different. And it all sounds quite familiar, doesn't doesn't it? All all, all over our societal conversation, this is the norm. And so in addition to an anti-culture, Reef labels our society society anti-historical. And by that he means it rejects the historical past as a source of significant wisdom for the present. So it goes something like this. The past has nothing to teach us because, well, they were all bigoted and sexist and racist back then. So needless to say, that narrative enjoys great prominence today in many sectors and in many different places. There's, of course, what I just alluded to. The narrative that America has never been and will never be nothing but a racist country. Worthy not of preservation, but only of dissolution. And it's really ironic, we have one side that sees nothing but evil in the past, and therefore wants to destroy it, and another side that sees nothing but good in the past. And of course, neither are quite right. And there's also, and I think this is the most ridiculous of all these anti-historical narratives, is the new atheist narrative an Enlightenment narrative, that things were so terribly bad till the rationalist heroes saved us from the backward and bigoted ways of religion. And so these men write books like God is Not Great and Breaking the Spell and The End of Faith, and they position themselves as rationalists. But in truth, they are the most blindly doctrinaire and fundamentalist zealots one could imagine. And even we, right? The church. We have our own. At least the Protestant church. And it goes like this. The church was nothing but darkness and hypocrisy. The Middle Ages. Only corruption and perversion. Until at the fullness of time. The reformation sparked. And light was restored. There is of course some truth in all these narratives. But they're all far too infected by this anti-historical mindset. The past is bad. It means nothing for us. We can write it off to be taken at all seriously. Of course, C.S. Lewis, he puts it best. He calls it chronological snobbery. And it is, he says, the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. It is old. And therefore, it is necessarily of no value to us because we, enlightened and reasonable people that we are, are the peak of human wisdom and learning. The past has nothing to teach us because we've transcended it. And so we sit at the end of history as omniscient judges on all that has come before us. And this culminates, lastly, in what Reef calls a ruthless forgetting of the authority of the past. And so he compares our present situation to vandalism. A deliberate destruction of the ideas, the customs, and the practices of the past. And of course, I, I, I don't need to enumerate the long list of examples here. They speak for themselves. And so the entire situation can be summed up in a Super Bowl commercial. Um, I remember watching it and 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 just taking note of it because it was so indicative of this very thing. And its message was this. To create the future, we must defy the logic of the past. To create the future, we must defy the logic of the past. And there it is. The anti-culture, anti-historical, the ruthless forgetting. To chart the way forward, we need to annihilate the past. We need to defy the past and turn ourselves completely against it. It's only a hindrance to progress. It's only a hindrance to where we are going to go. And so having positioned ourselves diametrically opposed to the fifth commandment and to what it envisions, our society will reap the very opposite of what it promises, longevity in the land. You can't have a society. You can't have endurance over time with the current mindset that we embody. But just for a moment, I want to take a step back and fine-tune everything I just said. It's appropriate, and indeed commanded in some circumstances, to disobey one's parents and to reject the heritage that they've transmitted to us. And so it is on a societal level. Most of the attitudes that we have today toward the past come from the 1960s. But the truth is not everything in the 1960s was illegitimate. We have or we have good reason at least in certain respects to be glad that that generation had courage to oppose the past, particularly in the case of the civil rights movement and women's suffrage. These are good things. And to pretend that a similar courage is not needed in some sectors of society today is to put too much confidence in our righteousness. We always need to have a critical eye toward the past. And so it's not my intention to turn us into mindless drones uncritically receiving everything that we've received. And I realize that in setting myself up the, against this anti-culture, against this anti-historical mindset, it can very well sound like that. Like we just need to receive everything and that's it. And really, with the church, there ought to be a certain distance Um, a certain critical distance from our earthly heritage. Because no matter how noble our societal or family heritage, it will always bear the indelible mark of sin, and we can never be too closely aligned with it. And as the church, the past is important, but never as important as the future. We take our identity not primarily from what was, and you guys know how much, I revere the saints and heroes of the church's past. But we take our identity from what will be. And those titanic figures in the past are only precious to the extent that they embody the future, more conformed to the image of Christ than others. And so all that said, right, those caveats made, it's readily apparent that our current course is unsustainable. I said that it's simply the 60s spirit, And it is, except there's only one difference. In the 1960s, there was something to rebel against. The movement had so much energy and impact because society was, at least in some quarters, too conformist and rigid. The counterculture had something to be counter to. But in our day, right, many years on, that's no longer the case. In our present moment, we push boundaries simply for the sake of pushing boundaries. And the ridiculous thing is is that there's no more boundaries to push. There's nothing to rebel against anymore. And so transgression and rebellion have been elevated from tools only to be used when absolutely necessary to basic cultural instincts, instincts. It's already just entered into the way things are. And this accounts for the absolutely rapid pace of change in our society. It took same-sex marriage some five decades and really even more to establish its legitimacy in our society. And it's taken transgenderism less than a tenth of that time for it to become acceptable, to the point where now it's almost unquestionable. And so the end result of this, anti-culture, anti-history, ruthless forgetting of the past, is that every boundary will be pushed down at ever greater rates until every boundary has been abolished and all the contents, everything that the boundaries held in, spills out until everything is lost in dissipation. And so here's now where we want to turn to ourselves. What does this amount to? What does it mean for us? Now, I'm not going to start giving prescriptions on what our society needs to do, but instead, I want to wind this message down by pointing out the missional opportunity before us. I think it's clear. The church's most remarkable witness in our present situation is to be remarkably ordinary. The church has an opportunity to be a refuge amidst the current turmoil and chaos of our age. A community that exemplifies what people never knew they needed. And it will be different from the wider culture, strange even. But that's the point. That's what we want to do. We don't want to embody the anti-culture, anti-history, and the ruthless forgetting of the past. So, but to do that, we have to be different. We have to embody our own counterculture as exemplified in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means, that means for us, that there are some things that need to change. There's some things about our relation to authority and the way we handle ourselves to authority that needs to change. And the first, and it's very simple, is our attitude toward authority. We have to present something different than what the culture currently has on offer. We must, as the commandment teaches us, render due honor and Uh, to all authority and to all men. And that means, and I want to be very clear about this, that certain attitudes and rhetoric toward the authorities that the church is all too willing to tolerate must be shown no toleration. I'm not sure why, but when it comes to authorities, particularly politicians, we think it's open season. And that couldn't be further from Scripture's testimony one may disagree with the authority, and that profoundly so, but we confess a Messiah who was crucified on the cross, who went to his death as a lamb before its shears is silent. We have no ground whatsoever on which to slander or dishonor anyone in authority. And so our attitude must change from one in which that treatment is acceptable and to one in which the only acceptable treatment is honor. All authority is from God, Romans 13. And therefore, all authority is good. And our respect for it must reflect that. When we dishonor authority, we cannot but dishonor the one who sanctioned that authority, the one who gave those people that authority. And so for the Lord's sake, we have to, not ever do that at the bare minimum that means that no matter the circumstance we must refuse to speak evil of those in authority think of acts 20 it's 25 or 26 right you remember when paul's before trial maybe 24 when paul's before trial and the high priest is accusing him and the high priest has his guard slap paul in the face and what does Paul do? He, he strikes back and he calls him a whitewashed tomb and says that God's going to strike him. And then they say, do you say that to the high priest of God's people? And then Paul takes a step back and he says, I didn't know. And he quotes the commandment. You're not supposed to speak evil of authority. While he was being unjustly treated, unjustly tried. So there's nothing about our current circumstance that in any way, in any way, prohibit or, or that, that uh, uh, validates that type of treatment. So closer to home, right, that's out there with the authorities. Closer to home, what does this look like? You know something I'd love to see in our church? And it's here, but I would like to see it even more so, is that we would give this preference to the aged. Not merely because they're aged, but because they're fathers and mothers in the faith. There's an authority there. There, there, is, there is something so respectable about that that we must honor. And I would love, I would love, love, love for every younger person to just embody that, just an an implicit respect for who they are in the Lord and the fact that they've been in the Lord so much longer. It also means heeding the instruction of the elders, right? And I mean one-on-one basis, not merely as optional advice, but as those, Hebrews tells us, who keep watch over your souls. There's an authority there that the Lord has given them that's appropriate. And I also just want to say that this actually means showing honor. Rather than simply talking about it, there's deeds and acts and gestures that must follow. But I want to move on at a quicker pace here. So another area in which the church can be positively different in this respect is in regard to the authority of the past. You know, taken minimally on our part, that means gratitude that we'd show a gratitude to the past. If we treat the past with disdain, then of course there's nothing to be learned from it, except maybe a cautionary tale or two. But if we regard the past with gratitude, recognizing that it's made us who we are, then indeed there's something to be learned from it. There's something there to be valued. And I think in the church... This issues in a basic concern, a minimal concern, for what our forefathers said about God and the church and the scriptures. Their understanding on these matters is not unimportant to us, but a wellspring of wisdom and discernment. Right? We, want to, we want to pay attention to that. After all, they are quite literally our fathers and mothers in the faith. They are an authority for us. But again, one might say, Scripture is our authority. And it is. It's our ultimate authority, but it's not our only authority. The fathers and mothers of the church are not an authority alongside the Scripture, but they're an authority over us. Without their testimony, a rooting in the past, a familiarity with their view on these things, we inevitably import modern prejudices into our reading of Scripture. There's nothing to root us, right? There's nothing to kind of check our interpretations. Their reading of Scripture and its difference from ours, coming from another time, another place, and another people, keeps us honest. So, we want to give honor. We want to treat the past with due authority and and respect. And lastly, I just want to draw this to a close, and I think it's appropriate by bringing it back to the very words of the commandment. The very beginning of this message, we said that parents are at the heart of things. And then I went on to talk about every other form of authority and honoring them. But really, as we've been saying, it begins with honoring father and mother. Right? So if we want to, if we want to stand against all the anti culture and all that other stuff, the best place to do it is just simply by honoring father and mother and if we can do that then I think we can recover everything that we've spoken about and again if we can do those we can at least in some small measure be those who we're supposed to be a city set on a hill and a light to the nations let's pray